morning, Twitter. I'm in a silly mood. Look out. I'm Zaya Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It's the first day of August to which I say Merry Christmas. What? Happy New Year. You're watching AM to DM. And friends, the year is 2025. <laughs> no, the year is not 2025. The year is 2018. August 1st, man. The last day of summer Whatever. is September 22nd. Don't be a summer bummer. Summer bummer. See, listen, I grew up in Texas, and in Texas, school starts back like, I don't know, I feel like August 10th or 12th or something like that. I'm sorry. So I'm like, it's a wrap, y'all. It's over. Are you Hope in you had school? Fun. Are you in school? Are you getting back to classes? <laughs> no way, guys. Keep it's those over. beach towels out. Get that sunscreen. Mm -hmm. Still a lot of summer left. We're going to live forever. No, we're not, because let's talk about these 3D printed guns, girl. <laughs> All right, well, that that's, is, the, that's the segue you're getting from that me this is morning. That's a good transition. Uh, 3D printed guns are on a lot of folks' minds this morning. Matt Honan, you tweeted a judge has blocked the release of 3D printed gun blueprints for now. BuzzFeed News reporter Amber Jamison joins us now. Uh, good morning, Amber. Morning, guys. All right, so what do we know about this case? Everyone is talking about it this morning, I feel like. And we also want to know about the judge's reasoning for blocking these blueprints. Yeah, so it's a little bit confusing because essentially there's kind of two court cases that have been going on. So one is that um, this company, um, Defense Distributed, um, has been trying to put up uh, blueprints on the internet so that people could download and make 3D printed guns. Um, the government banned them several years ago and they sued the State Department. And over the summer, they sued when it was the Obama administration. And now it's the Trump administration. They settled and this summer and said that uh, they were allowed to put... Uh, these blueprints up on the internet so that people would be able to access them. They were supposed to go up uh, today. However, a group of attorney generals really very concerned about what this might mean in terms of safety. And so they sued the State Department and, and this company to stop that from happening. So that's the ruling that happened uh, yesterday. So basically an injunction happened so that the blueprints won't go up now. Um, and basically what the judge said was, that there is, you know, a risk of irreparable harm um, right now with these blueprints going on, but that there is a concern about First Amendment rights so that that will have to be discussed in later court dates. So that will be discussed in later court dates. What do we know about Defense Distributed, the company that's trying to put these blueprints online, and its uh, founder, Cody Wilson? Yeah, so Cody Wilson is is really kind of the main person. He's the main spokesperson for the like, organization. It's not really known how many other people are in it. Uh, he's a very divisive figure. Uh, he's a young guy. The company's based in Texas. Uh, he he was the first person to ever make uh, and shoot a 3D printed pistol back in 2013. He sees this as basically Second Amendment rights in the 21st century. Um, he's already said that he plans to litigate widely to allow it to happen. Um, he's also involved in a variety of other cryptocurrencies um, and an organization, uh, an online thing called Patreon, which is kind of like a Patreon or Kickstarter for people who are not allowed um, on those sites, often kind of alt-right um, people. He's been, you know, the Southern Law Poverty Center uh, basically described him as someone who helps to fund the white supremacist movement. Okay. And again, this is a very interesting and complicated uh, set of cases. Initially, it seems like um, the federal government was against this because of the idea of like exporting weapons or weapons technology. And then as you mentioned, under the Trump administration recently, they reversed their policies. So what was the, the, it, the issue that they focused on for changing their minds? Well, it's not clear why um, the government settled, um, apart from the fact that it's, you know, the Trump administration who have been a lot uh, less inclined to fight gun control. Um, when they settled, they also paid his his legal fees. Um, and this has been a bit of an issue that sort of divides people in different parts of the gun lobby. Um, it's been banned for years to be able to make uh 3D printed uh, guns using those printers. That, and that's what the NRA has been saying. They say, and that's what Trump said yesterday, you know, we support those laws that have banned that for a long time. It's a little different when it comes to the availability of blueprints um, and making that very easy information to do. So this is really where I think these court cases are going to make this a, a little clearer because, you know, the gun lobby doesn't necessarily want to stand up in defense of, of people being able to build their own uh, guns, but it doesn't also want to push for uh, a bunch of regulation around it. And, and Amber, let's talk about that because I, I do. I want to bring up the president's tweet, uh, what he said yesterday, which was, I'm looking into 3D plastic guns being sold to the public. Already spoke to NRA, doesn't seem to make much sense. And Amber, you yourself are just kind of saying, so the NRA is kind of in a tough 
position here where because they're very pro-gun rights, right. um, but they're also representing gun manufacturers who make money selling guns. So uh, is the president here kind of advocating for a form of gun control? And why is he going to the NRA in the first place? Well, I mean, obviously we know Trump's close ties to the NRA and whether he's sort of advocating for gun control or not, what he sort of says is that he speaks out against 3D printed guns, which are already illegal and continue to be illegal. And that's what yesterday, you know, a statement from the White House clarified that that's what they continue to support. They continue to support um, a ban on those printed guns. But what is more unknown is is the blueprints um, and really, which is what this whole you know, current um, court debate that it is about. And so that's where it's unknown of whether or not what Trump's support is, if he supports the, the release of blueprints or not. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, Amber, thank you for joining us this morning. I didn't know a lot about 3D printed guns until this uh, set of developments. So thank you for your reporting. No worries. Thanks for your help. All right. We've got a, a tweet here from Rachel Hey Girlfield. Uh, she tweeted, uh, can we get 3D printed birth control? Uh, they're harder to get than guns in the U.S. Wow. Okay. All right. Somebody woke up. Rachel had her coffee. Yeah, she's feeling feisty right, this morning. Well, here's a tweet from our next guest, BuzzFeed News reporter John Stanton. I've been thinking a lot about our preoccupation with the belief that harsh immigration policies are a deterrent to undocumented migration. It's an article of faith for Democrats and Republicans alike, and it's a deadly, largely failed idea. To that point, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News about Stanton's latest story, finding themselves with few options under Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy, more families are making the potentially deadly journey across the Sonoran Desert. Under the current administration, activists fear the death toll will only rise. Will only rise. John Stanton joins us now. John, good morning. Morning. To start, why... In comparison to other areas, is it so dangerous for immigrants to cross the Sonoran Desert? Yeah, the Sonoran Desert is probably one of the most dangerous places um, on Earth. Uh, the temperatures can get up into 120 degrees. There are very few roads. There's almost no water. Um, you can you can die from literally spraining your spraining your ankle um, because you just won't be able to get to um, to help and you know you're supposed to drink about three to five gallons of water um, a day when you're in the Sonoran Desert, which you obviously can't carry around with you. And you know it's such an open and vast sort of space; it's easy to get lost and um, not really able to find your way around. And so um, every year, thousands of people die in the desert out there, and a very large percentage of them are um, immigrants coming across the border. Okay, so the Sonoran Desert is literally a death trap, is what you're telling us, um, which then brings us to the policies, past and present, both under Trump and President Obama, that have driven people to this death trap. What are those policies? Yeah, so this, it's all actually really started during the Clinton administration in 94. Um, it's called Prevention Through Deterrence. And the idea is that if you use a combination of very harsh um, and brutal immigration policies, so for instance, um, in the case of the Trump administration, separation of families, um, the, the, the Obama administration would, did a bunch of raids at workplaces and was trying to do mass deportations of, of children, migrants. Use that. You increase the number of people on the parts of the border that are easiest to cross, so like East Texas or near Tijuana. And then you use these places like the Sonora Desert as a natural deterrent. People will stop coming. Um, but that doesn't really take into account reality at all because you know, the people that are coming, particularly from Central America, are coming because they live in failed states that were largely caused to be filled by the United States. And there are now gangs that have sort of filled that power vacuum and are terrorizing them and, and they're fleeing with their children. And, and the idea that just because you make it harder to get asylum is going to make somebody not come is kind of a crazy idea. In fact, it might make them take a more dangerous approach. Uh, John, I want to ask, do we have any sense of numbers either throughout history or more recently of how many people have attempted to cross the Sonoran Desert, how many people have died, and where are we getting those numbers from? So it's difficult to know um, the exact numbers because, you know, there's no turnstile in the desert, right? There's, there's nobody out there clicking like at the club when you walk in. Um, Every year, they, they, there are activists that go out to look for bodies in the desert. That's all they do is every week they go out and they spend a day or two walking the trails that are most likely being used by migrants. And almost every time they go out, they'll find at least a couple bodies. Um, 
One activist told me that they average a little bit over 250 bodies a year are found in just one part of the Sonoran Desert. The, um, the, the number, though, is probably much, much higher. There's some, some people believe that it could be as many as 1,000 or more people are dying a year just through crossing the border alone. Wow. Okay, so for this story, you spoke to activists, as you mentioned, as well as people who like run shelters for people who were kind of making their way along this incredibly dangerous region. It seemed like um, it's usually men uh, from Central America who are going through this path. So I wanted to ask you, in light of Trump's zero tolerance policy, uh, family separation, uh, did they speak to any changes they've noticed? Yeah, well, that's, that's the most concerning thing, I think, to a lot of people, is that traditionally the, the Sonoran Desert, if you were going to try to cross there, um, was a place that only sort of young, fairly, fairly well-fit uh, men would try to cross. But, you know, especially with the family separations and with the new policy that they have of slow walking or turning away asylum um, seekers, even at ports of entry, and for instance, Nogales or El Paso, there are more and more families that are now coming towards the Sonoran Desert. And that has created two things. One, you got people going into the desert, obviously, and dying, but it's also created a business opportunity for the drug cartels who now control the, the, that part of the border and they charge fees um, for smugglers to bring them across. They oftentimes will force um, uh, families to carry drugs. And there is this increasing trend of families essentially being used as bait where they'll send them out into a, a part of the desert where they may be seen by uh, border patrol or where they may trigger some of the um, electronic frontier kind of things that they have out there so that the border patrol will go pick them up so that they can bring the drugs with some other people. So this is all sort of what's happening now to families. Well, uh, John, as a send-off and a thank you for joining us this morning and your reporting, I want to read this tweet from Ashley C. Ford. Listen, DC Big John is telling the truth this morning. The United States did cause the problems these people are running from. Uh, John, as always, thank you for your reporting and for joining us. Thank you. All right, Global BuzzFeed News Director Lisa Tazi, you tweeted, Facebook has once again been the target of coordinated political influence campaigns with activity that was consistent with, but not definitively tied to, Russian state-sponsored actors. BuzzFeed News tech reporter Ryan Mack joins us now from San Francisco. Ryan, good morning. Morning, guys. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so is this uh, a case of Facebook, frankly, um, admitting to a new failure? Or are they just being more transparent about action they're taking in real time? It's interesting because these were 32 accounts and it's, it doesn't seem like that many, but it really feels like Facebook was trying to get ahead and be proactive in terms of telling the public what it's found on its platform, especially in light of some of the criticism that happened around the 2016 election and, and people criticizing them for not being upfront about what they'd found with, with state-sponsored kind of interference. All right. And so what, what did they find? What do we know about these 32 pages? And do we have any idea of like how many people they've reached? Sure. So these were 32 pages on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I think they were actually more prominent on Facebook. The Instagram accounts didn't have many followers. Um, but what they found was about 290,000 users had liked or uh, interacted uh, with at least one of these pages. And, and, and accounts. And uh, along with that, there were also events that were created by these, by these pages, I think 30 events, um, 28, which had already happened by now. Um, so it was a, a fairly significant kind of uh, reach for these things. I should say so. Uh, does, has Facebook as yet given an indication um, if they're aware if there are other bad actors out there that they are you know, kind of looking after? They've kind of kept it close to their chest. I mean, they've briefed the Senate Intel Committee on Monday. They've briefed um, some task force, including the FBI task force. Um, but they've kind of let the public know on a kind of need-to-know basis. Um, a lot of the stuff that was um, released yesterday was very controlled. Um, so, and they wouldn't even say, um, they wouldn't even definitively say if, if Russia was behind this. So it's, it's kind of been on a kind of uh, need-to-know basis from, from them. Uh, on a need-to-know basis, I did want to ask real quick, Ryan, um, was there a reason why they released it when they did? I was reading your piece, and a, an event that was coming up on August 10th was pointed out. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, Facebook didn't really say why they announced it when they did. Of course, they, they briefed the Senate Intel Committee on Monday, um, but there was also an event, um, uh, kind of a Unite the Right 
counter protest uh, in DC that was happening on August 10th. And one of these pages, one of these fake pages had set up that event, um, uh, which then led to kind of actual organizers and actual people saying they were going to attend. Um, and so I think this had gotten a, a bit of traction online and was scheduled for about a week and a half from now. All right. I can't imagine just showing up, you know, somebody going to a protest and then realizing it was all a setup. But, I mean, uh, I can't imagine because it happened, it happened <laughs> a couple years ago. <laughs> um, and listen, Ryan, I want to draw attention to this tweet from our own Kevin Collier. Worth noting here that Facebook clued in the U.S. government to this operation, including the FBI's Foreign Influence Task Force and Senate Intelligence Committee, and not the other way around. Ryan, you mentioned that yourself. Is this the first time we're seeing Facebook be this proactive? I don't know. I mean, I think I think publicly it, it, it's one of the first examples, but they always have back channels. They're always talking to the government. Um, certainly more. They're being more proactive than with with what we've seen with the 2016 election. Uh, and they kind of want to be credited for that. I mean, they don't want to see a, uh, an event where they're criticized again uh, heavily for for not being upfront with what they're seeing. All right. Fair enough. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. We have a tweet here from Queer Mermaid. Um, saving, am I admitting to failure or being transparent about your actions in real time for my next performance review? That's smart. <laughs> so which That's I say, smart. That gif of that young girl just going, why not both? <laughs> <laughs> Strategy, I like it. We'll stick around, friends. Later in the show, we've got Chloe and Hallie. I love their music. I love their voices. Hey. I love Grownish. Coming up later this week, Rachel Zoe and Jerry O'Connell. Up next, Fire Tweets. Gonna. Can you believe it's As I mentioned, it is the first day of August. Shout out to Leo's. Okay. Shout okay. out to Leo's season. Also, we wanted to give a special birthday. Uh, shout out to Kirsten Baptiste. Mm. Kirsten, you watch the show, I think, more than we do. Number one fan. <laughs> number one fan. Number one fan, number one stand, number one queen. Happy birthday. Yeah, let's I give love. it up in the eye. Woo! Kirsten, Kirsten, we love it, we love you. These fire tweets are dedicated to you. We need you to live, frankly. Okay, this tweet <laughs> comes from Matt Belisai. Let's go. Can't believe people are out here still choosing to be straight. <laughs> I don't get it. Isaac, explain yourself. Let me tell you, you know, it is a choice. It is a choice. It's a lifestyle choice. Uh, we've talked about the 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 the, the bravery. The, the bravery yes. I've shown in the past, you know, talking to my parents about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Took my fiance out for dinner last night in public. Okay. Uh, yeah, we held hands. It was amazing. <laughs> oh man. Andy Richter, you tweeted the word precocious would be completely unnecessary if people got over their squeamishness about calling children assholes. Now, weren't we just talking about this? <laughs> yes. I have no problem calling you assholes. Yeah, just call a little kid assholes. a dick. I love you. I Seriously, love you. Have you heard anyone described as precocious that's not like yeah. five years old and wearing a bow tie? <laughs> <laughs> like precocious is literally a euphemism. <laughs> I don't think anyone said precocious and not men like you. All right, little asshole. All right, this tweet comes from Mike Drucker. Yes, let's all angrily lean over and look down the subway to let the train know that we really expected it to be here by now. <laughs> let's do it. I mean, let's let's do it. Shall we lean? Oh wait, you, and you where gotta look at that. The, yeah, you look where at the, is that? Come you on. gotta look at the other Come person. Where, yeah. Can you believe? Can you believe? You see this? I think I see a light. I think I see a light. The wind? Do you feel the wind? Do you feel the wind? <laughs> And you tweeted, <laughs> I love when you're at the grocery store and the veggies are having a shower. <laughs> I did enjoy that as I'm a kid. What, what was it about? Just the broccoli fun? getting misted. Like, ooh, yes, you know, because they're living their best life. You deserve. They're just sitting there all day just getting that mist. Mm, it's a good life. I'm sorry, our producer's <laughs> Too much, too much. Okay, tweet you it want, do you want, you want me to keep broccoli Please, scrubbing? You want some of that? Right, out of right, here. Okay. Tweet of the day. Let's go. Tweet of the day, Natalie Foster. <laughs> HR at my work just called me and I thought I was in trouble for something, but they just let me know my 11-year-old sister has been commenting on their Instagram every day, telling them to give me a raise. <laughs> yes! I love it! Family supporting Shout family. Queen supporting queens. <laughs> now, when I say this young child is precocious, I actually mean it. She gets in, it. In the best She's of like, all the possible ways. She's like, the rent is too high. <laughs> my, my sister, sister <laughs> works hard for you. <laughs> I love it. Shout out to you. So to this point, Twitter, um, if you could give anyone in your life a raise at their job, mm. um, who would it be and why? Ooh. 
and left some love today on the timeline. Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. And if you're feeling bold, at them. Let them know yeah, that oh, you're please. giving them some love. This Absolutely. could be fun. I like that. All right, listen, up next, we're going live from the district. Talk to Tarini Party. Woo! A Tarini Party. A Tarini Party. Welcome back. Okay, we are going live from the district right now with BuzzFeed White House correspondent Tarini Party. Good morning, Tarini. Good morning. All right, we are we are a little loopy here, um, but you know, look at the timeline. Did you blame us? Uh, <laughs> I wanted to start by asking you about this tweet from just a little bit ago from President Trump. Uh, this is a terrible situation, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now before it continues to stain our country any further. Bob Mueller is totally conflicted, and his 17 angry Democrats that are doing his dirty work are a disgrace to the USA! Exclamation point. <laughs> Okay, you know, Tarini, I hate to put you in this position again of interpreting the significance of the president's tweets, but is it fair mm. to say this one might be pretty standout? Yeah, so it's the usual Trump with a little bit of extra added in there, and that extra is the ex him explicitly telling Attorney General Jeff Sessions to end the, the Mueller investigation. So that is a little bit of a, an extra thing that he's thrown in there. Uh, usually, he, you know, he, he calls the, the Mueller investigation a total hoax. That's no secret. We know the president thinks that. But this detail is important, especially because the New York Times reported recently that we know that Robert Mueller is actually looking at the president's tweets and how much pressure he's put Jeff Sessions under through his tweets as part of this investigation. All right. And so do we think that there's going to be any uh, fallout from this? I think it's unclear right now. I mean, I think the response from Republicans will be interesting, whether this leads them to actually do something about the legislation that you know, has been talked about in terms of protecting the protecting Robert Mueller. Um, I think that Sarah Sanders will be getting asked about this a lot today. There's a there's a briefing that's been added to to the schedule. So I think we're going to hear a lot more about this today. All right. Uh, well, let's turn now to this tweet from the AP's Zeke Miller. Trump says you need an ID to buy groceries. Honest questions. When's the last time he's bought groceries? Uh, Tarini, saying you need an ID to buy groceries is pretty wild. And again, significant means maybe you haven't done it in a while. It raises some questions. Especially Trump doesn't drink, so it's not like he's getting carded on those beers. Uh, so why did he bring this up? Mm -hmm. So the president was trying to justify voter ID laws at, at the rally yesterday when he brought up using the ID for groceries. And you're right. I mean, it, it's it's clear that he hasn't been grocery shopping in a while. And maybe when he did go last, he was his cart was full of you know alcohol for a party he was throwing or something. But you know, it's it's clear he he doesn't really know what the process usually entails. I hate that now. I want to see President Donald Trump going grocery shopping. <laughs> now I need to see it. I need the cameras following it's him. It's also worth noting that Florida already has voting ID, but that's a whole other that's thing. That's a whole <laughs> other thing. Uh, let's let's talk about what's going on at the border because I have been so interested in, there's a lot of new reporting in the last 24 hours about it. Here's a tweet uh, from Janine Guerrero. Uh, Commander Jonathan White of Health and Human Services admitted he warned Trump and Jeff Sessions about significant risk of harm and psychological injury as a consequence of zero tolerance, and he was ignored. Uh, Tarini, I saw this, my jaw dropped. Um, has the administration responded uh, to these new comments? We haven't heard anything from the White House yet, but this is something that is going to develop uh, because it was a pretty stunning admission from the HHS official to say that he warned them that this was not this would not be in the best interest of the children. And this issue the, of you know separating families is continuing. You know we're not hearing it about it quite as much as we did a few weeks ago, but it is an issue that obviously there's a lot of reporting yet to be done on uh, and to dig into. All right, Tarini, what was the hearing uh, where this was said in anyways? Like, what was going on? So this was a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing uh, where this HHS official testified and he got grilled on uh, the zero tolerance policy that, as we know, you know, we've been following for the past few months that's led to the separation of, uh, of families at the border. 
Okay, and, and I don't want to read in one's minds um, because we don't know what they're thinking, but does this uh, line with the idea that the Trump administration really did not think through the consequences of implementing this policy? It's pretty clear that the president and his allies in the administration were so focused on implementing the core of his agenda, which is immigration-related and securing the border, that they didn't really seem to think about um, the, the fallout or the consequences. I mean, we've seen this issue evolve over the last you know month or two now. And uh, even when it came to the executive order that was signed, it was very rushed. It was kind of uh, done as the president was heading out of town. So every step of the way, we've seen sort of a rushed approach uh, that is more in line with what the president wants to do on kind of an instinct level rather than uh, probably a laid out, well laid out strategy. Well laid out strategy. Well, listen, in more news related to separated families, here's a tweet from the Washington Post. Trump administration must stop giving psychotropic drugs to migrant children without consent, judge rules. Uh, Tarini, why were officials give? I can't believe we have to say this. Mm -hmm. Tarini, why were government and ICE officials giving psychotropic drugs, uh, which you know deal with the mind, uh, emotions, and behavior, uh, to migrant children in the first place? So they claimed that they were giving these uh, drugs to children in only emergency situations. But what we've what we've seen with the children testifying and what the judge ruled was clearly not the case. These children were getting this medication uh, up to you know two times a day in the morning and evenings, sometimes forcibly. So this was clearly much more than just an emergency level uh, occasional use that was uh, given to children. Do we have any idea where this was taking place? So this was taking place at a facility in Texas. This, facil this facility has been, um, uh, you know, under uh, a, a lot of crucial reporting for the last few months. We've seen other stories come out about this facility in particular. Uh, there's been some allegations of abuse. And obviously with uh, this new, um, uh, what we've now learned about, about this facility, there'll be more coming out um, in the next few weeks. Right. And, and did the judge, I mean, this is such a surreal situation, of course, but did the judge say anything about like what specific law was violated? I would imagine typically you would have to get a minor's parents uh, permission, but, you know, the situation was so different. So it's the child welfare law that, that the judge said was violated, uh, but they're also looking into other aspects. I mean, it, it seemed that there was a sort of a broad uh, uh, violation of welfare, whether it's, uh, you know, not giving children enough water to drink or limiting um, their access to going outside. Uh, it was kind of a closed down facility that, uh, you know, based on laws that have been passed uh, about how these children have to be taken care of, didn't quite follow. Didn't quite follow. Well, uh, here's a tweet from Rebecca Ballhouse. John Kelly told staff on Monday that Trump asked him to stay in his post through the 2020 election. And John Kelly agreed. And Tarini, we have a reply tweet from you here. Uh, this also means that we will have to put up with the is Kelly leaving or not stories for two more years. Oh, great. Uh, Tarini... First of all, I'm sorry, girl. Uh, do we have a sense of what has changed in the dynamic between John Kelly and Trump? So from what everything I've heard, it doesn't really seem like much has changed. So uh, the president reportedly asked Kelly to stay on and he agreed. And in, in theory, he's going to stay on until 2020. But as we know, uh, with everything we've seen with this administration, two years is a really, really long time. So uh, who knows what will happen and whether this is actually, you know, something that Kelly is going to stick out for, 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 for that long of a period. I mean, I got to ask, how much influence does John Kelly really have, even though he's the chief of staff in Trump's White House? We've really seen his influence fade in the last few months. And at this point, you know, it seems that outside of the president's outside advi advisors and new people he's brought on, including Bill Shine, the new sort of communications director, seem to have more clout in the president's ear uh, rather than someone like John Kelly. So everyone seems very surprised that Kelly would be willing to put himself in this position and, and stay on for as long. So, again, uh, you know, it, it's nice to be seen if, if Kelly's actually actually going to stick this out for two more years, given that he has no influence left in the White House. Mm -hmm.
What I think is interesting about this is that we could have just taken John Kelly's name out of every sentence we all just spoke, and it would have been relevant. It could have been Sarah Huckabee Sanders, anyone before him, Mike Pompeo. Right, so I guess here's the question. How much attention should we pay to the is X person in or out of the Trump administration narrative? I think we're all a little tired of those stories, which is what I was trying to get at with with my tweet there. But I mean, you know, everyone is kind of considering, as we've reported before, is either considering leaving, has already left, or will at some point consider leaving, given the uh, given what happens at the White House every day and how chaotic this administration has been. So whether it is now or within the next year, there's going to be a lot of turnover, and we've already seen a lot of that, and that seems uh, that seems to be a pattern that will continue. Tarini is tired of guessing games. She's fed up. She's, She's like, don't it. make me talk about it anymore. <laughs> well, listen, Tarini, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. All right, up next, Chantal sits down with Chloe and Hallie. We stand. We stand, we stand. and we're excited. Stay tuned. Parkwood Entertainment. All right. with musical duo Chloe and Hallie, who released their debut album, The Kids Are All Right, and are currently opening for Beyonce and Jay-Z on the U.S. leg of the On The Run 2 tour. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. How are you? We are wonderful. Excellent. Yes, amazing. Yes. I'm great. Thanks for asking. So, so when I think of the term dynamic duo, you two pop in my head immediately. Okay. Like everything you do is amazing, turns to gold. So Thank you. you've both been working with Beyonce since 2014 when she first saw your YouTube cover of Pretty Hurts. Yes. So throughout the year, What's the best piece of advice that she's given you that's really stuck with you? Oh, wow. I would definitely have to say the best piece of advice that Beyonce has given us would be to trust our gut mm -hmm. and don't dumb ourselves down for the world. Let the world catch up to us and trust our artistry. And I think hearing that coming from, you know, a powerhouse like her was so uh, inspiring to us and it continues to motivate us every day whenever we create or anything like that. And, you know, we love her to death. Absolutely, so. yeah. Amazing. And you both also appeared in Lemonade, which yes. was an amazing, amazing work of art. Such a masterpiece. At the time when you were filming, did you have any idea how big of a phenomenon it would become? Oh, you know, absolutely not. We're always so excited to be even a part of any part of her projects. Mm -hmm. and. Um, we love her to death and we love that she has guided us along this way and helped us you know with our album and our album the kids are all right is out now that came out in march and we're just really really happy about it it's amazing and you both wrote and produced on your entire album which yes. black girl magic okay thank you and you had a few collaborators work on it all, as well so tell me what do each of you bring to the producing and songwriting process Oh, wow. Well, uh, why I love creating with my sister so much is because we both have two completely different perspectives. Even though we're sisters and we're best friends, we both have our own mind and our own our own way of thinking. And I feel like that definitely shines through our art. And I love my sister because her melodies are so classic and timeless because I think that she's such a big jazz head, too. <laughs> so that helps. And I love like the big beats and, you know, the different sounding chords and I love to experiment so when it all comes together it kind of creates our sound and we're music lovers first so we love everything from alternative to rock to R&B to pop so we like to mix everything together and my sister won't say it but she's an amazing producer you know she produced this whole album and me and my sister we wrote all the songs so it really just came from our hearts it's just a diary yeah it's mm -hmm. awesome and everyone knows how amazing this album is and it also got uh, a MTV award nomination, two of them, including Best New Artist, and congratulations. <laughs> what was your reaction when you first heard the news? Oh, well, oh. we were so excited yeah. to be nominated for VMA, you know? Um, it's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And Best New Artist and Best Push Artist, we were just happy to be included with those other amazing artists yeah. as well. It was pretty cool. Just to say we were even nominated for VMA it, after our like first album came out this year, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So. 
Awesome. And speaking of amazing artists and people you've been working with, is there anyone that you have your eye on that you'd love to work with next? Well, you know, Ooh. right now I am loving like all of the amazing females, young girls that are up and coming like mm -hmm. LMI and her. We just love the women empowerment because we're so strong when we come together and, you know, the projects that all these youth artists are releasing are amazing. So we're happy to be a part of the bunch. Yeah. And you're also dominating in the acting world as well. You have an amazing TV show on Freeform, Grown-ish, which everyone loves. So tell me, what can you tell us about uh, season two? Oh, wow. All I can say is that I am super duper excited to start season two. Uh, we're on the tour for On the Run 2 right now. And literally right after we finish, we start filming immediately. And I can't wait to see our family again. Every one of them is so near and dear to our hearts. And I love it, too, because we were able to combine our music into this acting world that we were uh, introduced to so it's pretty cool because we wrote and produced the theme song and uh, the grown song so it's pretty cool how it all meshes together with our the kids are all right theme and we're just grateful so yeah and your sister bond is so unique off screen on screen i mean it's so dynamic and tell me how do you make sure you nurture that not just as collaborators but as sisters as well Yes, well, my sister is my best friend, and it's really fun when you get to, you know, do everyday life and also work with your best friend. Um, you know, there's no other person who knows my heart more than her, so it's easy to be creative with, and you can be honest with somebody like this. So it's really fun, and I think our music career really help, helps nurture our sister yeah. connection, really, because we're going through all of these experiences together mm -hmm. and seeing the world together, and we can talk about it amongst each other, and it's really fun, and I can't wait till we're older and we look back at these memories. We're like, wow, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you make amazing music together, you tour together, and now I want to see how well you two know each other. So Ooh. we're going to play a little game. I love Want to play? Awesome. Yes. Okay, so I have these two paddles oh, with both cute. of your faces on them. So I'm going to give each of you one. So I'm going to read you a list of questions, and I want you to turn to the picture of the uh -huh. sister who best fits the, the, the description. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. Okay, first up, who freaked out more when you first met Beyonce? Chloe. Oh, Chloe. <laughs> Chloe. Chloe. Yeah. Okay, next one. Who knows more Jay-Z lyrics? Oh. oh, can I do both? I feel yeah, like I can do both. we're pretty even on this. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you know your Jay-Z lyrics, all right. So who flubs their lines more often on Grownish? Oh, Hallie. <laughs> she laughs I a laugh lot too. Really? really hard. In between takes yeah. and stuff, or while you're shooting? While we're shooting. Like, while we're shooting, because Trevor, who is on the show as well, he's like our big brother. He's so funny, and he purposely tries to make me laugh, and he gets me every time, oh, and I just Trevor. fail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, who has a more complicated pre-show routine? Chloe. Me. It's always it's different. Makeup, Every it? day it's yeah, different. Yeah, you know, I feel like even be, no, ma no matter if it's a show or if I'm just getting ready for a regular day, I don't know. There's so many layers. I get dressed. Even if I do pre-plan and I try to do better and pick out my outfit, turns out it doesn't fit me the right way I thought it would, and then I got to change yeah. everything. It's just a mess. It's a work in progress. Take it day by day. <laughs> <laughs> Who sleeps harder at formation choreography? Oh, Chloe. Me? Chloe, yes. definitely. <laughs> Which is, what's your favorite to dance to? Oh, do I have a favorite? Well, I love Don't Hurt Yourself because it's like a really like grunge yes. feel and you just want <clears throat> to rock out for sure. Next up, who is the most likely to borrow the other's clothes? Oh, me. Allie. <laughs> me, but I'm the little sister, yeah. so I'm bound to have it. <laughs> it's a part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> okay, who takes the longest to get ready? Me. Oh, Chloe. That was easy. Woo, every day. <laughs> me, 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 me. Okay. Who gives the best advice? Me. But I think I give the best advice. Well, you give the best advice to me. <laughs> but I give pretty great advice, too. To me? All my friends come to me for advice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got that uh, big sister. Maybe it's both. But, then. like, if you were comparing us, she, well, no, because when I'm down, she picks me up. Mm -hmm. When she's down, I pick her up. Mm -hmm. So it might be it's equal. equal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Okay, last up. Who spends more time watching Netflix? 
Oh. oh. It's pretty even. That's we Same. Yeah, we binge the shows together. Yeah. It's rare when one will go sneak off and finish the season. Yeah. She did that to me recently. I did that, yeah. What, what, what show power, are you watching right power. now? Power. I had to get ahead because, you know, you know when you just get sucked into a show and yes. it's like, I have to watch the next episode. But I did do that to you with season two of Dear White People. Exactly. I so we do it, it to yeah. each other. Yes, which you also have a song on the soundtrack for. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Everywhere. You guys are everywhere. <laughs> well, Chloe and Hallie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. It's fun. <laughs> all right. For, be sure to check out their album, The Kids Are All Right, and you can see them performing live solo and as a part of the On The Run 2 tour. Up next, we're talking about the future of MoviePass. You're excellent. Thank you. Jess Dwecky tweeted, the real bargain of MoviePass was the friends we made along the way. Pat Kennedy declared, if MoviePass dies, I die. Oof. Andy shared this unforgettable, unforgettable moment. Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good. <laughs> All right, well, Twitter is obviously having fun watching the demise of MoviePass, and here to talk about what happened and where it went wrong is Anthony Ha, a senior writer at TechCrunch. Anthony, thank you so much to join me in talking about the demise of this, this sad, sad tale of capitalism gone wrong. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm sad to be here for a, you know, kind of a bummer of a story. It's a bad day. It's a bad day. Okay, so MoviePass sounded like a great idea. All of my friends were telling me I needed to sign up for MoviePass. Ten bucks a month, all the movies you want. What went wrong? Well, I think what went wrong is sort of in the pitch right there, which is <laughs> basic economics don't really make a lot of sense unless you're just basically flooding it with outside investment. Um, and so you're spending $10 a month and you're getting, and you know, an unlimited number of movie tickets that costs a lot more, at least theoretically. The only way you make that work is by getting outside investors to fund it and hopefully getting the movie studios and movie theaters to um, get on board eventually, and that hasn't happened yet, so they're starting to run out of money. So is this the end of MoviePass? Walk us through why we're saying MoviePass might be dead. Basically, if you have uh, MoviePass, you've noticed over the last few days, it's basically going in and out, or mostly out, I think. Um, and at the same time, they put up a regulatory filing where they admitted we had to borrow $5 million just to pay some of our partners to try to keep the lights on. That doesn't necessarily seem to have worked. And they basically admitted at this point that um, they're going to be changing their model yet again uh, to, if it's a big movie, you're not going to be able to see it at all in the first two weeks. And they're also going to be raising prices from $10 to $15. Um, none of that has necessarily taken effect yet. And it's also not clear if that's going to be enough to even just get it up and running again. But that's sort of, they're saying, hey, we have a plan. We have a plan. We'll see if it works. So what do you think went wrong with MoviePass in terms of, I think, a lot of people thought, like, what was the, what did they think was going to happen that would keep them afloat that didn't happen? Well, I think you've seen a lot of tech startups that don't make money for a long time. Um, Uber certainly is one of them, where you know, you just get people to write them really big checks and you just get lots of people to use it and then eventually the math makes sense. Um, and I think for a bunch of sort of boring financial and corporate reasons, they weren't able to make that work. I mean, I think certainly one of the big ones is they said, we're going to do this on our own. We're not going to work with the movie studios, which is part of why the business model makes sense because there's no like discount for them. They're just buying your movie tickets for you. And so when that happens, you're just burning through an enormous amount of cash. I think another interesting thing is maybe they thought it would be like other subscriptions where people might buy it and then never use it, where it was kind of the opposite, where people did <laughs> use it. That's the problem. Right. I think they claim that there are certainly some people who it's like, like you said, like a Netflix subscription or a gym subscription where there are certain people who never use it and you're basically paying for all the people who overuse it. Um, I imagine that the balance was probably a little bit not where they thought it was going to be. But I think they always assumed that they were going to be losing money on that part of the business and they would just be able to raise money elsewhere to make it work. So what does this say about the movie industry? Uh, Alison Wilmore, who was on the show a lot and one of our reporters was on the show last weekend, she said that she thought the device of MoviePass was really sad because people were actually going to the movies again. I think one of the things that it taught us about the movie industry is people actually maybe do want to go to the movies more than they do, but they can't afford it anymore. 
I think that's absolutely correct that if you look at box office numbers, basically we're at this point where if you're Disney, if you're Marvel, if you're making a Star Wars movie, although not even with the most recent one, um, you're gonna make a lot of money. Everyone else is struggling. And so if you can make a more affordable model where it's not necessarily the most famous characters, the 10th sequel to something, you can still go and take a chance on a movie. And I think a subscription model is still gonna play a role in that. Whether or not movie, I think MoviePass hopes that they're still gonna be the one to make that happen. If it's not gonna be them, it might be one of these other programs. Yeah, now we have, it seems like now the studios and the theater companies have seen that this could be a success. Now we have AMC, Stubbs, A-List, Cinemark Movie Club, Cinema, Alamo Season Pass. So these are clubs that are made by the movie theaters themselves. How are they different besides that fact? And do you think these could be a success? Uh, I certainly think it's possible. Um, they, as you said, they're, they're made by the theaters themselves, which probably obvious, but that means you're only getting into those theaters. You're not getting into every theater. Um, you know, Stubbs A-List, for example, costs about twice as much as what MoviePass costs right now, but it does come with additional benefits, like the ability to get your tickets ahead of time rather than just kind of rolling into the theater and hoping for the best, getting IMAX tickets and things like that. Um, and there's also this service, Cinemia, which is more like a direct competitor to, to MoviePass, um, but they limited the number of tickets you could get in a given month. Like the cheapest plan was just one ticket a month for a discount. Um, uh, which is not as exciting, but maybe makes a little bit more business sense. Yeah, I know. We So we all thought it was too good to be true. Maybe it's too big, good to be true, but you know, MoviePass isn't dead yet. Maybe it'll come back. Right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll, we'll be able to see 50 movies a month for 10 bucks. We could always dream, <laughs> that right? That totally makes sense. It Absolutely. makes complete financial sense. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Up next, more AM to DM. Hello, my queens. Okay, there are an unprecedented number of LGBT candidates running for office in 2018. And as the November election approaches, we wanted to talk to candidates who are challenging the traditional mold of what it means to be a politician. Uh, Lupe Valdez is one of these people. She is the first Latina and first out uh, gay person nominated by a major party for governor in the state of Texas. Y'all know what that means. She is the former sheriff of Dallas County as well. I grew up in the DSW, DFW area. Lupe Valdez, good morning. Hey, good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so I, I wanted to start by asking you about the climate for queer folks in your state, in Texas. Um, your opponent, Republican Governor Greg Abbott, supported Texas's controversial bathroom bill. Uh, how does it feel to go against someone with that kind of record? Well, what, but what you didn't say, or what, what is true, is that the bathroom bill didn't pass. You know, there's a bunch of people who made a lot of noise to try to get it out there, but it didn't pass. And I think what's important there is the majority of the Texas is no longer what they seem it is. I think what, what uh, a lot of people hear of the Texas brand is what Greg Abbott and his, and I wanna say his cronies, his, his people that are, that are serving with him want you to think, and it's not true. Um, you know, the, the Texas brand is uh, more uh, tolerant and more um, less hateful than what you're getting now than what you're getting now. And, and, and to that point, I mean, I grew up in Louisville, Texas, uh, just up I-35 from Dallas. And, and I yeah, remember I when I was in high school, I, 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 I avoided coming out because I was scared to run for National Honor Society president. Um, and here you are running for governor, which is of course incredibly inspirational, but you know, it's also things have changed, but perhaps still an uphill battle. So I was just wondering, how are you kind of reconciling things have changed, but Texas is still very much a red state? Look. Texas is not a red state. It's a non-voting state. If we just get the people out to vote that are registered to vote, not even new ones, but just the people that are registered to vote, get them out there, uh, we would, it would be a different Texas. And uh, now also remember, Texas chose me as their, as their nominee for governor, yeah. which says a lot. They all know I'm out. They all know my status. And if you look at me, you know I'm Latina. So but the Texas chose me. So Texas is changing. And yes, it is an uphill battle. That's one of, one of the things we're going to have to deal with. But what other kind of battle is there? Really, Jaheed, what other kind of battle is there besides uphill battle? So if you're going to continue 
um, to fight issues like this. It's always going to be an uphill battle. But once I get in, then it's an open door for everybody else. The opportunity once I get in will be tremendous for the people to follow. And that's the important point. Not so much that I'm the first this or the other, but the fact that the door will be open to many others and the opportunity will be there for everyone to be accepted in Texas and to be able to run for a public office. Well, let's talk about another important part of your story. You're also an army veteran. Um, I was wondering, what was your response uh, to President Trump's trans military ban efforts? You know, his trying to kick out the transgender and he's also kicked out the the folks that are not citizens that have, that have been fighting for this country, they were not citizens and the transgender have, have uh, fought for this country. Lots of them have been in active duty. Um, he's basically saying you're not worthy. And, and uh, people like myself and many others are going to continue to fight to make sure that no one is told you're not worthy, that we can continue to be who we are. Um, as you mentioned, you were in Louisville a while back and, and yet you weren't comfortable in coming out yet now in Louisville, um, they, you know, it's, it's pretty decent. It's pretty nice to be able to be who you are. And, and, uh, right up from there is farmer's branch. I'm sure you're familiar with farmer branch that had the, those cruel city ordinance. Um, and, and now all of that has changed. So as we continue to move along, uh, there is progress. But there has to be a battle or there has to be um, a change, a transition in, in, uh, in the progress. And some of us need to step up and make it happen. Mm. Speaking of um, the military, something I often uh, kind of wonder about is, you know, a lot of LGBT people and people who don't even identify as LGBT perhaps have a suspicion um, of law enforcement and, and the military. So I was wondering, from your perspective as, as a veteran, a proud veteran and former sheriff, um, how do you address people in the LGBT community who might feel, you know, less enthused um, about law enforcement or the military? Well, I know when I was in the military, I was extremely closeted. Um, I think some people knew, but nobody would ask. And this was in the 60s, in the, in the Vietnam era. So nobody would ask about it. I would just, I would just uh, continue on my life without addressing any, anything concerning my lifestyle. And, and now, um, I think in the urban cities, or I know in the urban cities of Texas, uh, Everyone but Houston, every one of those major cities but Houston has passed an anti-discrimination law and has passed uh, an equality law. So except for Houston, all of the other cities, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, El Paso, are all uh, accepting. And in law enforcement, it has to do a lot with the leadership. And in, and in urban areas, you more or less have to accept the community that you serve. I've always said you cannot serve a community that you don't know. Mm. So you have to go to the communities and, and know about the communities in order to serve them. And when that happens, it's easier for them to come in uh, to the department. I, I also understand there are departments in rural areas and other areas that, are, that may not be as accepting. Uh, I read something you all had in Alabama. Um, you know, those areas may not be as accepting and, and we have to continue to fight in those areas. We have to continue to be strong enough and thankfully get some support from others to be able to stand up and, and, uh, acknowledge or let the people know that, um, we're just as normal as anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, speaking of communities and conversations that we are seeing and hearing in them, um, immigration obviously is an important conversation and in the Democratic wing, there have been a lot of calls recently to abolish ICE. Uh, do you support uh, calls to abolish ICE? Um, ICE had a purpose. I think we have to restructure ICE. They had a, a purpose originally that was to defend the United States against people coming in to do harm. I think it has strayed from its purpose. I think we need to um, do a, a reorganization of ICE. But the original purpose of ICE was beneficial. It's no longer that same department. 
So we do have to reorganize ICE, but um, to totally abolish it, I don't think is the proper thing. I do think we need to abolish it as it is now. As it is now. Well, one last question, and thank you uh, for your time this morning. Do you have any advice for people who have uh, traditionally felt marginalized by the political system in the United States, in Texas, who are looking to run themselves? You talk about, you know, um, there's obviously been a lot of change across the country, and even in the state of Texas. What would you say to people who find themselves uh, kind of hesitating? Look, um, you don't grow unless you get out of your comfort zone. You don't experience uh, accomplishment unless you get out of your comfort zone. It's necessary to, uh, as long as it's safe, I wouldn't advise for anybody to do anything if it's not safe. But as long as it's safe, I would advise all of us to continually step up. Look, um, and I wanted to go back to your, to your ICE question. Family separation is wrong and it's cruel and it's torture. Anything like that should never be accepted in the United States. And, and in Texas, anything like that should never be accepted. But I will say to the folks that are, um, that are wanting to step up and, and run, do it. So what if we lose one or two races? So at least we make people aware that we're there. And so what if we have to, you know, uh, uh, do things uh, out of comfort zone? But, it, but it's until we do things that are out of our comfort zone, until we do things that are uncomfortable for us, is when we start making progress. People have to know we're here, and they're not going to know unless you start coming out to them as long as it's safe. I'm real cautious always to tell some folks that it needs to be safe for you. Uncomfortable is okay. okay. Unsafe is not. Okay. Powerful words. Well, again, Lupe Valdez, candidate for governor in the great state of Texas. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Jaheed. Come back to Texas sometime. I will. I need to go back and get some good Tex-Mex. Yeah, there you go. It's always here. <laughs> All right. Up next, friends, Isaac and I are going to read your tweets. Hello. Okay, so um, end of the show, I wanted to uh, have a follow-up on a conversation I had on the show a couple of weeks ago with Miles Tanser, a music editor at Fader. Martin Cindy Martinez, you tweeted, wait, J-Lo is getting the MTV Vanguard Award and not Missy Elliott. It's true. I believe it is true. I don't know if it's totally official, but I think... I think we, I think it's totally official. Think it's official. Oh, yeah, I think man. TRL tweeted it out. J Lo was Dang. tearing up. And again, not J Lo is a legend. Shine. She's a legend. We have many legends to choose from, but I'm not even. You know the argument in favor of Missy Elliott. The campaign for Missy for next year starts now. It starts now. A Can missed opportunity. You hear for the Missy. people Don't. sing. <laughs> It's just a revolution, you know. That is not, we've all been trying to avoid singing Hamilton all morning long. That's lame, is. And I know, but I was like, is that your attempt to like. Get out of here, you know, get out of here. Shoot your shot. Anyway, okay, let's talk about your tweets. Uh, some more of your tweets. We asked uh, for someone who deserves a raise. Someone in your life, you're just like, you know, they're at her work and they deserve a raise. Lauren Perez, you had this to say, who deserves a raise? My mother. Lady works night and day as head of the physical therapy department since before I was born, works harder and puts the most care into her job than anyone I know, and yet her bosses are never satisfied. The worst. Mm. Ah, man, shout out to your mama. I like that. Hardworking mamas everywhere. They Give all mamas a raise. <laughs> Just on, on like, GP. <laughs> like, come on. I feel like that's something we can all come together on. Give mamas a raise. Yep. Uh, Kate Dolls also shared someone who needs a raise. If I could give my sister a raise, I would, because an adjunct professor, no one should have to teach nine classes in a semester Ooh. just to pay down some student loan debt. Nine yes. classes in a semester. Shout yes. out to professors, shout Wild. out to adjunct professors. Woo. There is a system that give them a raise and honestly give them benefits, <laughs> right? Because that's all you know. Actually, they don't have. Woo! Shout Absolutely. out to your sister. Absolutely. Shout out to you for being there for her. Uh, one more raise suggestion from a queer mermaid. Oh, okay, girl. <laughs> Who would I give a raise to? Extreme Beyonce voice. Me, myself, and I. That's all I got in the end. <laughs> okay, we see you. I mean, hey. No care like self-care. <laughs> Just like no money like my money. Uh -huh. Give my one k has needs, darling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, 
<laughs> Christian, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to change from raises, uh, Christian has this to say about Facebook. Facebook should only be used for creeping on the summer vacation pictures of some older millennial who you haven't interacted with in person since Laffy Taffy was the number one song in America. That is very specific. Ooh, that tweet is doing a <laughs> that lot. That is incredibly specific. That is an incredible, incredibly specific tweet. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I get the point, though. I think he's basically just saying Facebook's out here for old people, so who cares? Which, True. fair enough, Christian. True. Fair enough. I do just use Facebook basically to like stunt and check on my enemies. Like, <laughs> I get it. Anyway, thank you to all of our guests. The wonderful, the miraculous mm. Chloe and Hallie. I love them so much. Their music is so great. Everything's wonderful about them. Amber Jamison, John Stanton, Ryan Mack, Tarini Party, Chantel Fallon, Stephanie McNeil, Anthony Ha, and Lupe Valdez. Thank you all. Absolutely. What a great show. And we will be back here tomorrow, 10 a.m. It will be Thursday. We will see you then. Woo. What is that? Happy New Year. What is that? Merry is Christmas. A fish? What is that? <laughs> 